You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 30. Today we're asking the question, what do safety professionals believe about themselves? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, and I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. If you're coming back, well, thanks for coming back. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and have a look at the evidence surrounding it. But every 10 episodes of the podcast, we indulge ourselves by talking about one of our own research papers. In this case, it's a piece by David called Benefactor or Burden, Exploring the Professional Identity of Safety Professionals. David, maybe you could start off by explaining just what professional identity is and how you came to be writing this paper. Thanks, Drew. So the background for this was I just finished my literature review and I really wanted to try to understand what had been researched in relation to the safety profession over the last 20 or 30 years. So I, I sort of dug out and read everything I could find on safety professional practice. And we knew a lot. We knew a lot about the tasks that safety professionals were performing. We knew about their training and educational background. We knew about a whole range of organizational factors and relational factors. But I didn't feel like I knew or I didn't feel like we knew what safety professionals actually believed about themselves and, and what they believed about safety. And I'd also spent a bit of time exploring different social psychology theories. And I was hung up a little bit on this idea of structure and agency, which is how much of the role behavior of safety professionals is directed by what they think and believe versus how much is directed by the structures and environments and contexts within which they work. And I was curious about this because I'd seen Lots of safety professionals in organizations perform their role in similar ways, even though they had very different uh, backgrounds and experiences. So I got a little bit uh, curious about this. So the way that to come at, come at this was to research the beliefs of safety professionals about safety and their role. But before I go into the method and what I actually did, I thought, Drew, you might give us a little bit of an overview about, maybe you can give us the overview of professional identity and, and role and, and the background theory around that. Uh, so I'd, I'd put this into the notes, David, hoping that you were going to explain it to us. I, I do remember that at this time of the research, we were both pretty interested in what it would look like for someone who had a very new view of safety to be a safety professional. And so before we assumed that that would be a totally different role, we really wanted to have some understanding of how much a safety professional's belief actually matters. You know, how much power does a safety professional have to reshape their role because they believe in safety differently or safety too? And so there's, there's a few sort of distinctions we need to make in talking about professional identity. The first one is that distinction between what someone does and who they are. So we might call that the difference between like role and identity. Role is what you do. Identity is what you believe and what you think. And if obviously the two are related. Your role helps create your identity. Your identity helps create the role. 
But it doesn't have to necessarily be exactly the same thing. Someone could have very progressive beliefs, but be stuck in a very traditional system, a traditional role, progressive identity. Second thing that it's important to distinguish is between organisational identity and professional identity. We all belong to a number of different things. We're all part of our own family. We're all part of the company we work for. We all have our private lives. We're all part of a, a group or identity or profession. And we have different identities that come from each of those things. So we need to sort of tease that out a little bit and understand how much is coming from the company you work for and how much is coming from yourself or yourself as a member of a profession. So your professional identity is an individual's self-concept. It's what they believe about themselves, about what it means to be the type of professional they are. And so you can break it down into what they've experienced, what they believe, their values, their motives and attributes. So Drew, thanks for, thanks for taking that one. You did all right. I was worried that I'd be spending too much time talking uh, on this episode. So I was looking to throw to you as, as often and as early as, as I could. And early on in this paper, we found, we found a range of stereotypes that people had written in the literature and used to describe the safety profession. And the safety profession have been described as, as a policeman have been described as a bureaucrat and even even described as a priest or a psychologist. So these personas and stereotypes or labels that that are put onto the safety profession, is this how we should think about professional identity? So this is where the difference between a stereotype and identity is whether it comes from the inside or the outside. Um, so very few safety people describe themselves as bureaucrats. <laughs> I do actually know a few who describe themselves as safety cop, but it's usually a little bit ironic. Those are outsider labels that people pin onto safety people, whereas professional identity is how they see their role from the inside. It may match the stereotype. It may not. That's something that we want to interrogate through the research. And so the professional identity literature, and, and, and there is quite a body of professional identity literature, and, and for the more what we'd consider to be the more established professions, there's been you know, quite quite a number of studies when we think about teachers, uh, nurses, doctors, lawyers, police officers, engineers, these these established professions have all have all had varying degrees of research done into what the common professional identity uh, is around around people who are in these roles. We used, I'd say the most popular model of professional identity, Drew, is a model by Ibarra, uh published in 1999, and it describes five aspects related to professional identity. And I thought just to finish off before we dive into the paper, it's worth just just a quick definition of each of these. So I might just run through these quickly and then we can we can move on. So experiences, these are simply events or occurrences that happen throughout your career or life that leave an impression on the safety professional regarding how they think about and practice their role. And you'd all have had those events throughout your career that leave a lasting impact on how you think and how you perform your role. Attributes. These are qualities or features that can be regarded as an inherent feature of the safety profession and things we see commonly, for example, the caring attribute in the case of nurses or an analytical type of attribute in the case of an engineer. Uh, beliefs. This is trust or faith or confidence or an acceptance that something exists or is true. So I believe this. Uh, motives. So these, as you might think, motivation, a person's reason for doing something. So a police officer might strongly identify with a motivation to protect communities or a lawyer to uphold justice. And then finally, values. Values are principles or standards of behaviour resulting from one 
ju one's judgment about what's important in life. So to to spoil some of it, a safety professional might think that I have to draw the line or call out things that are unsafe to protect lives in my organization. So Drew, the core question we're asking today is, what do safety professionals believe about themselves? So let's, let's talk a little bit about the method and the paper. So the, the paper, as I mentioned earlier on, is Benefactor or Burden, Exploring the Professional Identity of Safety Professionals. The paper was published in 2018 in the Journal of Safety Research. That, that's one of sort of the big four Elsevier safety journals. You may have heard of safety science, reliability engineering and system safety, accident analysis and prevention, and Journal of Safety Research is the fourth. The research was performed as part of David's PhD, so he was first author, and the other two authors are Sidney Decker and myself. The main research, this wasn't the main research in my PhD, the main research was something that um, I did a study over, over about seven months where I really wanted to explore safety professional practice, and this was the lead-in to go, well, to understand practice, I can observe all the things that are going on in, in an organization, but I need to have a model and an understanding of what's going on inside the minds and the, the the heads, if you like, of the safety profession to try to make sense of all of that. And maybe when we get to episode 40, Drew, we'll flip a coin and at least at some point we might talk about the main the main research I did during my PhD. But the the method for this was to to do 13 in-depth interviews. So get 13 safety professionals and and have quite an in-depth interview with them. Because given the constructivist nature of professional identity, much of the research involves context-specific, what we call context-specific qualitative case studies. So because we need to get at very personal and often unconscious beliefs associated with professional identity, you can't kind of just ask a safety professional, how do you identify as a safety professional? What are your beliefs? What's your motivation? You'll get a very transactional understanding of of the person and and more broadly the profession. So we talked we've talked a little bit about this in psychology research that you have to you have to come at this from a slightly more obscure angle to try to elicit the deep and the rich information that you need to build a model of professional identity. Drew, you've already mentioned we we need to separate professional identity from organizational identity. So I had participants all from the same company because the feeling was if we had 13 people from 13 different companies and you get differences in insights about beliefs about safety, beliefs about the role, beliefs about who I am, it would be very hard to attribute whether some of that is confounded by organizational identity or whether that's a um, divergence in professional identity. Um, so that was a conscious choice of, of the researcher. Do you want to comment anything about the participants, Drew, and before we get into the method? I think it's interesting because this is something that the, if I recall, the reviewers or the examiners did question, is the trade-off that you make when you get everyone from the same organization. The, the advantage is you know then that organization isn't a factor in the differences between your subjects. But what you don't know is how much organization is a factor in the similarities between the subjects. You know, if there's something that seems to be common across all of your participants, that could just be that because they're from the same organisation, they've had that same experience or they share that same value. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point, Drew. And and it's always hard when when you know I believe, and as far as I understand, this was the first professional identity study done on the safety profession. And these early exploratory type of studies is is hard because you don't have a theoretical framework. It, it makes it hard to go broad to collect data. So we 
we knew we had to do depth first rather than breadth first research. We we actually had to develop an understanding, and to do that, we had to do it as a case study and and do it quite quite deeply. And did call at the end of the paper the need to actually broaden this out now and broaden this work out more broad across the profession. So one thing that interests me as well is, David, you yourself are a safety professional. These are obviously questions that you've had to ask yourself, questions that I expect you were specifically asking yourself when you decided to move into doing a PhD. How do you think that flavoured the research or was a help or a hindrance in doing the work? So reflexivity or research reflexivity, we've mentioned that before. People might understand it as researcher bias. It absolutely affects it. And it's a it's a trade-off. And <laughs> we've talked about trade-offs in safety as well, because uh because professional identity is such an internal and 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 detailed and like I said earlier, sometimes unconscious understanding of a person's own beliefs. They're not things that we always readily have available in the front of our mind. That that professional identity emerges out of an ongoing dialogue. So for me to have the empathy and the understanding and the and the context to be able to have a two-way exploration and and probe and and explore allowed more rich data than would normally get. It's quite common in professional identity research from reviewing the literature to have someone very familiar with the profession as part of the research team, both in the data collection and in the analysis. I imagine there's a lot of subtle references that you would miss if you weren't a safety professional yourself hearing someone talk about their work. It did challenge me though, because the questions that I'll mention, well, I'll mention now, were hard and tough to put people on the spot. And um, and I actually st- still not sure today how I'd actually answer the questions that I asked the participants. Um, but the, I asked four very open questions. So to allow participants to deliver their narrative for who they are and how they understand safety in their role. So the first question was just simply describe your safety background. And participants could come at this however they want. You know, I left high school and did this, or I was involved in an accident, or my father did this type of occupation or uh, there was an opportunity and it was looked like a good job. So, so, ha- so this is where people could just tell their narrative for how and why they got involved in safety and, and trying to elicit these experiences and, and, and uh, motivations. The second one was describe how you think safety is best managed in organisations. So this goes to beliefs and, and, that, and this, is, this is also being influenced through, like you mentioned earlier, we're trying to get underneath what types of safety theories people uh, tie in with. So do they say that it's all about systems? Do they say it's about leadership and culture? Do they say it's about a good safety organisation? Then the third question was, describe your role as a safety professional in the organisation. This was trying to get a little bit clearer so we could understand activities, uh, values, um, the necessary attributes of people performing that type of role as it's described. And then lastly, the fourth question was, describe the major successes in your career as a safety professional. And we're trying to get a sense of what good looks like, what, what, what people see as, uh, as the goals or outcomes of their role. Um, and again, to get insights into, into motivations and beliefs about safety. So four questions, Drew. Interviews, I just let, I let them go until the interviews were finished and the interviews went for between 45 and 90 minutes. So I ended up with a total of 655 minutes or about 11 hours of audio and about 170 pages of uh, written transcript. So that, that got us the data, Drew. So uh, a huge amount of basically conversational text. So do you want to tell our listeners about how we, how we then went about turning that 
11 hours of safety professionals rambling amongst each other about safety and the role into a model of professional identity. So there's two ways to answer that question. One of them is to talk about theory of qualitative analysis, so grounded theory and discourse analysis. The other is to sort of give our readers a sense of how this actually happens, which if I recall correctly, was you and I sitting on opposite sides of the desk with the same transcript in front of us, just each reading through and trying to work out what jumped out at us. Now, that that isn't as unscientific as it sounds, because a lot of what you're trying to do with this is to notice the hidden assumptions and values that are revealed by what people say. So there are certain language structures that people use that link concepts together and say, like, this is the same as that. Or distinctions that they make, you know, I'm this, I'm not like that, or I'm not one of those people, shows that they see the world as having those categories and that they see themselves as belonging to those categories. So the first step is to sort of sift through and find all of those statements that we think are significant and revealing. And then the next step is then to try to group those together, find common patterns, categories that keep emerging, assumptions that keep emerging, values that keep being revealed across the interviews. Yeah, you're quite right, Drew. We were we were in your office and we had printed transcripts and we said we sat there quietly for 30 minutes or so each. And it was the the task was what are the most important pieces of information in this transcript in relation to the safety um, professional identity or professional role? We'd start off and we then we'd sort of play back to each other and we'd have maybe 50 or 60 or 70 percent overlap and then you'd pick out a nuance and I'd pick out a nuance and then we'd frame it up and then we'd go on to the next transcript and then we'd learn something new and then we'd go back into the first transcript and try to look for something that that uh, was consistent with or contradictory to that new piece of information from the second transcript. And this is, this is a method like prof- progressive comparison. So you're coming up with the important things, you're looking at the next piece, you're going and refining, you're looking at the third piece, you're going and refining. And, and that's why qualitative research is is so deep, but it's very hard to do with a large sample. I mean, it's not that hard for me to go and do a hundred of these interviews in a hundred hours, but it would be a a very difficult analytical exercise to then do something with all that data. And then the final thing I guess that's worth mentioning is just how do you know whether what you've arrived at is complete and valid? And there's a couple of concepts we use when we're trying to establish that in qualitative research. The first is this idea of saturation. There's no magic number for how many interviews to do. There's no textbook that says, oh, 10 is the right number of interviews or 20 is the right number. But the idea is that over time, you begin to see the same concepts come up over and over again, and you see fewer and fewer new things coming out of an interview. So if you've done 10 interviews, and then the 11th interview tells you nothing more surprising, then you've got saturation. You might do one more interview just to check, and if nothing new is coming up, then you sort of know that you're reasonably complete in what you've found. And the second important one is cross-checking and comparison. It's very easy to fall in love with an idea that's not actually real and just keep finding examples of that. So you're constantly testing, okay, this person said this, I think they mean that. What's the evidence for and against that actually being the answer? Um, And you want to see something cropping up multiple times in similar ways before you start to believe it's real. It's not that every participant has to say the same thing. You need to allow for the fact that different participants have got different answers and different experiences. But if something is just mentioned once with no support, then even though you might think it's really significant, 
if you can't test it or find some way of justifying it, then you just need to accept that you, that's that's interesting, but it's only just one statement. Yeah, and then following on from that, Drew, I suppose in good qualitative research, we're trying to do some data theory matching as well. So once we've got those themes out of the data, we then dive back into the literature and try to find theories and frameworks and other empirical findings that provide an explanation for the theme that we've found or provide a, some some further understanding of of you know, what's come out of the data that we've got. And that's why we were able to use the professional identity literature and particularly some studies that were done on other professions to make sense of some of the things we were finding in relation to the safety profession. So let's, let's move on and talk about the findings. Uh, so after all of this work, these deep, deep interviews, David, you came up with a simple, single, clear model that can tell us what is a safety professional and what do they believe? Yeah, absolutely. And for all the safety professionals out there, you'd understand that our role in organisation is one that is very simple and straightforward and lends itself to a very, a very simple model of the profession. But quite sarcastically, that's that's not the case. I mean, I was safety is an incredibly complicated profession. Um, and we have a, I concluded or we concluded that we have a, a consistent but a, quite a confused professional identity. And, and people in their minds, I think when you talk to, and this is why it was so valuable to do the the deep uh, roundabout discussion, because people in their minds, I think, might have a very clear view of what they think their role is. But as we got underneath it, the tensions and contradictions are, are really unresolvable. These are, these are complex social and organizational challenges that the safety professional faces in their role every day with their organization. So, Drew, we're going to talk about eight key areas in relation to that. And um, somewhere in all there is a whole range of questions for safety professionals to consider about how they identify with the role. But then there's some broader implications that we will talk about at the end. The first one, Drew, and the clear standout was that a safety professional's experiences is the most dominant factor in determining their professional identity. And, and this probably doesn't surprise people. We, we talk about being a product of our experience. But the main thing that was really interesting is whether people had a tertiary education qualification in relation to safety or whether they came off the tools, if you like, and had operational experience. So in this study, we had sort of half the participants who had gone to school, gone to university, done a safety degree, and then worked as a safety professional for their whole career. And then about half the participants that had come out of being a pilot or a paramedic or a mechanic and then came into the safety profession. And their view of the world was vastly different. David, I'm going to pause you for just a quick moment here because I'd like our listeners to stop and think about what do they think about the relative importance of practical experience versus having some sort of tertiary qualification in safety? And if you sort of form your own opinion immediately... And now, David, I want you to tell us what you found about what safety professionals believe. Well, I think if you form the view that tertiary safety education is is really important, I'm going to lay a lot of money that you are a tertiary qualified safety professional. If you are saying, if you form the view that frontline operational experience is, is really, really important, then I'm going to form the view, then I'm going to, I suppose, lay a lot of money that that's your career pathway and that you possibly don't have a tertiary qualification in safety. And I guess that's not that surprising that people tend to value that the path that they've chosen. But what shocked me was just how vehement people are and how much they devalue whatever type of experience they don't have. It's not that people who have practical experience were saying that that was important. 
It's that they were directly attacking the idea of having tertiary qualifications and attacking the competence and practicality of people who had tertiary qualifications. And it wasn't just that the people who had education were saying, hey, I really enjoyed my you know, university and I think that that's important. They were downplaying the expertise and competence of anyone who didn't have that sort of training. Andrew, it was even a little bit more confused than that because we've got some quotes here about you know someone saying that we shouldn't be employing people without tertiary qualifications in health and safety. And then another person saying, I think there's a group of people who are qualified in health and safety that are very theoretical in their approach and very rigid around safety. And I think that's personally disappointing. So we got these quotes here and we had, it was interesting that even with the, when tertiary qualified people said it was really important, they also said that they didn't actually learn anything useful in their tertiary qualification. They've, they've learned everything on the job, but their motivation was like, I'm committed to this profession. I've done the time. I've spent three years at university. I'm a real professional. And this was kind of like the narrative. So, and even though they may not have extracted anything valuable out of it, that was that was an important part of being a professional to them um, and still a critical part for, for all professionals. David, I don't know if you're planning to say this later, but another thing that struck me about that was just that word professional. It tended to be the case that the people who had tertiary education thought of that as being important as part of being a professional and that some of the people without that experience didn't actually label themselves as professionals. They saw the role not as a professional role, but maybe as a more of a practical role. I'm not sure if it was a professional versus practical role. I just don't know if they identified with the label safety professional. So we would have people in the, in the, um, some participants in the research who would say, these safety professionals are like this and use it to describe like a group of people that wasn't them, even though they were in a safety professional role. Um, it's almost like they they hadn't fully engaged with the label of safety professional for for some reason that 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 I'm not sh- that I don't understand whether they didn't like the label they didn't agree with the people who used the label to describe themselves or and they wanted to consider themselves different uh, I'm not sure. Now that that's really interesting and I'm interested here too what our listeners think of this particularly when they've had sort of similar experiences with that either that antagonism or that decision about what to call yourself and whether the label professional is something that you respond to or don't respond to. So Drew, this, the second tension was about relationships versus formal authority. So this is this tension between safety professionals having strong relationships with decision makers in their organisations and being able to influence versus having formal authority vested in them as professionals through management systems and, and having decision rights over being able to make certain decisions for safety within their organization. And even though the participants sort of unanimously agreed that relationships were, were more important, they still wanted to have the formal authority. And like in the episode, I think it was episode 23 on influence, they wanted a fallback. They wanted to be able to go, well, relationships are most important, but if I can't influence through relationships, I still want to be able to get involved in making decisions. I think one of my favourite lines from the study, and the quote isn't in front of me, so I'm not going to get it quite right, was someone saying that, you know, it's not my job to make decisions. I'm just the business partner. It's the operational leader's job to make the decisions. It's my job to make sure they get that decision right. If they don't get it right, I've got to fix it. Yeah, we'll come back. I think that that quote's a bit later when we're 
in the in the paper, but and that's just it. Um, and we'll talk about actually we'll, we'll save that until we we talk a bit closer to that theme, Drew. But this is where this is where people were saying quotes like, "I see my role as a partner and a supporter and enabler to the organisation to deliver a great safety outcome." And then also people um, trying to understand this tension between formal authority and relationships by saying things like. I'm not just a dude wielding a HSEMS, slamming it down on tables every now and then and evangelizing. So as if as if indicating, like you said, Drew, that there are that, that is part of the role of the safety professional to to uphold compliance with standards and and make decisions. Yeah, I think it's very telling. They they don't say I'm not a dude wielding it. They say I'm not just a dude wielding it, which is a concession that, you know, yes, that sort of behavior is part of the role. And we'll talk a bit again. That's that's something that comes up more. And 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 I know I'm deferring some of these conversations, but these many of these things are are interrelated, as as our listeners would understand. Even though we try to come up with a five element model of professional identity, these findings are interrelated. But this was that tension between relationships and formal authority leads on to the next tension, which is a tension between interpersonal skills versus technical knowledge. So this is where people were talking about their role. If people remember the questions from earlier, their role, what success looks like, there was this this discussion in every interview, in every conversation about let's just simply call it you know soft skills and hard skills. I know they're terrible labels, but interpersonal skills and technical knowledge. So the challenge here was that almost unanimously, again, professionals concluded that interpersonal skills were more important, but organisations actually valued them for their values, the safety profession for its technical knowledge bringing some actual insights and information to the table. But it was really interesting the way that people talked about the safety profession and interpersonal skills, Drew. This is fascinating. And and I know that the profession gets criticized quite a bit for not having great interpersonal skills. Um, but the first quote that I, I want to read out that I really love is when asked about that, uh, one participant said, it sounds a bit weird and it's going to sound really weird but the safety professional just being a normal person, quite frankly, um, in terms of being able to relate with other people within the organisation. Yeah, and and again, the fact that they were uncomfortable saying, you know, key part of my job is just behaving like a normal person, and that's the key to success, really says something about what they think about or have observed in themselves or in other safety professionals. And then we had these um, discussions about this idea that people would be familiar with about being a safety cop and uh, and not having the interpersonal skills, but just uh, just forming a view on technical knowledge and trying to drive it through the organisation. And, and the safety profession does understand that that's not an effective way to manage. It doesn't identify with that being an effective way to identify with or perform the role. So, so quite uh, nuanced quotes like, Understanding the dynamics and pressures that different people you're trying to influence are under. You just can't be a bull in a china shop. You'll always fail. And this, I think, is really important the, to get to that distinction between professional identity versus outsider stereotypes. Is I don't really think that there was anyone in this study, and very few people in my personal experience, who as safety professionals seriously don't think the job requires people skills and persuasive skills. Um, you, we might be seen or have stereotypes as you know, safety cops and bureaucrats, but the reality is that most safety people see themselves as influencers and see those skills as a key part of the job and a key part of successes that they've achieved in the past. Yeah, absolutely true. And and you mentioned stereotypes again. One of the challenges with professional identity is that people do 
get worried about and internalize these stereotypes and these projections onto them. And we're, we're going to talk about a few more things like bureaucracy and that. So, so people feel as part of their identity, part of their identity is about uh, discrediting the stereotypes that are put onto them. So they get, they do get a lot of airtime within the, within the profession's professional identity because of sort of how, how strong, I'm not explaining this very well, but if there's a stronger stereotype being imposed on the impre- on the profession, then and a weaker professional identity, then there's a lot of work that the profession will put into trying to discredit that. Where if you've got a strong professional identity, maybe like a doctor, there's not so much of a strength of stereotype that that gets projected onto that profession. So, so you're saying that doctors don't have to spend a lot of time worrying that oh people think of doctors as health cops therefore i've got to deliberately not be a health cop they just don't worry about it because people don't have that projection onto them yeah yeah and i think i think we'll talk about professional identity archetypes and then how training and education builds the well we'll talk about it now briefly but but having training and education and career development and progression that builds and reinforces the motives and the values and the attributes and the experiences that lead to a more of a consistent professional identity archetype means that there's this this strength of of identity amongst the profession which um, creates a sort of a closer connection between the external view of the profession and the internal view of the profession and it's one that's 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 quite absent in in safety so these last couple of items on the list start to draw a link between the professional identity and how people go about performing their role Dave do you want to just take us through the next couple of items yeah, let's do that. So one of the things that was very consistent in, in the in the data was this discussion about safety being about change, safety being about improvement, safety being about a journey um, to sort of take some thunder from Andy White, who's a friend of the podcast, who talks about journey narratives in safety. Success, the role, improving safety within organizations in the mind of the profession was all about taking the organization to somewhere where it's not today. So People would, the quote would be like, I'm leading them through the vision of what good safety could look like in three to five to 10 years. Or someone else saying, I've always said that good safety performance and good safety outcomes is a journey, not a destination. So this was really interesting. And why we pulled this out, Drew, is it's not necessarily consistent with management science or some of the new view view of safety, which says that there's a need to both understand the capacities that are currently delivering safety in the organization and sort of shore them up and reinforce them and support them as well as adding new things that um, may not be there at the moment. Whereas the safety professional identity is all about change. And I mean, that gives us as a profession something to do, gives us a a vision to work towards, um, but may miss a huge part of the profession's responsibility and to support existing operations. And I think this is one place where the role starts to dominate the professional identity that we have all of this narrative about needing to change, needing to lead, need to take people to the destination. But when we look at how much freedom people have to spend their time doing that sort of leadership and creating that sort of change, we find that they're in fact very much captured by the immediate bureaucratic tasks in front of them. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue to the next one, which is um, which the next tension is bureaucracy versus agency. So the profession really understood and identified with the need to build capability into into all people in the organization to make decisions for themselves, be they frontline workers, managers, other professionals, and to have agency to exercise that capability to make the decisions in front of them. 
But they also felt it was important to have safety systems, safety processes, safety bureaucracy to drive kind of consistent ways of doing things in the business. So this tension between how much standard process bureaucracy do I have to generate outcomes versus how much capability and autonomy do I build into people to be able to generate um, context-specific kind of outcomes. And so we had these statements of things like people would say, you know, there's lots of issues with our systems. They're very top heavy. They create a lot of burden. and They tend to get in the way. And then almost in the same breath, the quote that says, yeah, but our systems should underpin everything that we're doing. So there was this, there was this kind of tension between we need to have the system, we, the system's not working, but we can't really do anything about it. So it was almost this powerless kind of narrative around we just need to accept it. Well, it also seems to be a bit of a simultaneous faith and frustration with the system. In that even the people who are most frustrated with the system have absolute faith that a good system is the answer. It's just that they they haven't quite reached perfection in the system yet. So for some people, it's the need to simplify it. For other people, it's the need to get people on board with the system. For other, it's the need to improve it. But there is this faith that we can fix problems through having good systems in place. Yeah, I'm probably not giving giving full credit to the identity, if you like, if that's the right way to say it, because there was a general view that that modern safety bureaucracy is an absolute encumbrance on safety, but there was a not necessarily a a, a way to get started. What do I do about that as a professional? There was there was a lack of clarity about what to do do about that, but there was a there was a common understanding of the problem, and I suppose. You know, some of this research, Drew, this was for our list. This is all happening at the same time. We'd just written the safety work, safety of work paper. We were just uh, drafting the safety clutter paper. And this was all happening around the same time and kind of being influenced by by some of this research as, as well as other projects that were going on at the time. So the next one, Drew, is this, um, and the next two are kind of related, but let's, let's. Um, so we might merge the two, but there was this one is the tension between aligning with line managers or providing professional advice. And this is what I think Dave Wood said in the early 2000s about needing to be involved and, and aligned with, with line managers, with operations, but needing to be independent enough to have uh, objective, a more objective model of risk and, a, and, and provide insight and professional advice. So in this way, the, the safety first we're talking about pushing away from owning, owning safety and making sure that line managers were taking up their role and that operations personnel were taking up their role and then supporting what line managers needed to make it effective. But just, just holding the line and, and maybe just being in a position to be able to disagree with the decision maker. So that, that difficult challenge of providing support and providing challenge. And I think this is one of those ones where safety as a profession has it particularly hard. And this is something that you touch on. I'm not sure whether it's in this paper or in your later work, David, about it being really unclear what counts as a safety decision. So it's really easy for a lawyer to be both on board with management, providing them good advice, and independent. Because they can say, okay, I'm giving you the best advice I can, but it's my job to give you legal advice, and this is what the law says. It's easy for an engineer to say, look, I'm helping you achieve your goals, but the calculations or the standard is this, and this is where I draw the line. For safety, we don't have that sort of professional domain to fall back on, where we can say, I'm sorry, this is a safety decision and I'm the safety expert, here is the answer. Because all safety decisions are also operational decisions or are also engineering decisions or are also financial decisions. And I think, Drew, 
you're exactly right. Um, and I also think that sometimes, sometimes there is that decision because there is a very specific regulation when we're doing operational decisions like, can I work at this height without this fall protection? And there might be a regulation around that. But, but most of the decisions that we're, we're talking about in safety are, are, are absolutely not black and white. They've generally got quite significant operational implications. And so you're right, Drew, we did write in one paper that safety is rarely a standard to be achieved. It's a point of consensus among stakeholders. And once you've got something that needs to be a point of consensus, we run into all these challenges with uh, social challenges, challenges of power, hierarchy, and all these other things. So in the situation where there kind of are, are no concrete rules, then this space becomes really complicated. How do I maintain my relationship and provide professional advice when that professional advice may not be what the person making the decision agrees with and may cost our organization a lot of money? And am I going to be able to influence the next time? You know, these are all really um, complex decisions that that safe professionals need to make when providing their advice. Particularly since a lot of the professionals really saw it as an absolute moral and ethical obligation to at times draw the line. So even though there's this idea that their job is to be a business partner to support management, they still felt a very, very strong ethical responsibility that there were times when they had to be the ones to draw the line between safe and unsafe and to stand on the right side of that line and to protect it. And Drew, I think um, this was one that I've become more more comfortable is kind of that's that's okay that's okay over time when i first did this i thought oh you can't you can't sit there and go someone's accountable but then um as long as they're making decisions the way that i think they should make them or i'm going to let people make their own decisions until they get to a line and once they cross that line then then i'm going to revoke their decision making rights as the safety professional and there was a quote in here that said something like that actually sorry that says i quote the keeper and consciousness of part of the organization. There's always an element or a sort of policing that's involved in our role. And I think um, I think that that there is actually that is actually the case. You know, our role is to support and enable organizations to a point. And then there's got to be an ethical responsibility for us to to get to that point and not continue to support the organization beyond that. Now, where that point is is kind of like an individual professional decision. But I, I, at the, I just wanted to at the at the start. I was when I first done this research. When we were first writing up this paper, I was, ah, oh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But I actually think that you need to. And that is consistent with other professions. the The job of your tax accountant is to help you save money and reduce your tax burden and to use the laws in your own favour as much as you can. But there's a time when they just have to say, no, sorry, I'm not comfortable doing more than that. You, this is what the law says. On this side of it is tax minimization, which is okay. On this side of it, it's tax avoidance. And that's the law. And no, I'm not helping you do that. And you, safety professionals, maybe that line isn't clear and we need to do more to support professionals in how to work out where the line is and to support them when they make those decisions. But it is just a professional thing is support up to a line and then have that line clear that you're not going to cross. Yeah, no, I think that's good. And I think that's something that every individual um, safety professional can reflect on sort of how they're, how they're thinking about where that line is for themselves. And then when they, when they want to do something about, about it, how they're approaching that, that conversation with their organization. The last one here, Drew, is um, that safety professionals, we've mentioned a few times, are, are morally and ethically motivated. So many safety professionals, not, not all, but, but many identify safety as a calling, which is beyond beyond merely having a job or an occupation. And this makes the safety profession sort of similar to other professional identities like nursing and social work. So many of the narratives are, 
I, you know, I want to do this because I want to keep people safe. I want to prevent incidents. My father or mother had an incident or if I, or the quote here that says, if I'm going to spend time at work, I want to do something that will make a difference. For this reason though, the challenge here for safe professionals is for this reason that their professional identity and their personal identity is sort of very close, which means that safety where safety where an organization makes a decision that's inconsistent with a safety professional's advice they take this as a very personal reflection on themselves not just the performance of their role which is like if i'm just doing a job that i don't have close personal identity alignment with and maybe i don't have a deep personal value or motivation or care about the outcome i can sort of disassociate my own personal feeling of worth with my role performance whereas safety professionals find it difficult to separate their their personal worth from their their role performance. That's really interesting. And I have to admit, it was a little bit surprising to me, given that even though some people say, you know, why did you get into safety? Um, involves some sort of superhero origin story of uh, harm that's happened and caring that's arrived isn't, isn't out of that harm. But a lot of people get into safety by accident. It's not like people grow up through primary school and high school saying, I want to be a safety practitioner. Um, you know, plenty of people grow up wanting to be nurses or doctors or social workers or lawyers. A lot of people almost sort of stumble into safety. But still, there's this almost universal moral and ethical motivation that goes along with the profession. And I think also, Drew, just, just since you've mentioned that, is we also know that that narrative and identity evolves over time. So people would say... I did a safety degree at university because uh, there was nothing else to do or, or, I just, or I just did it. But then in the 10 or 15 or 20 years of their career, they form that moral narrative through the way that they think about the, the contribution they're making or the way that others talk about them or the way that they talk about others in the profession. And so people would say, for example, in the data that I, I want to keep people safe. That's why I do this job. Yet 30 minutes earlier, they would have told me that they the reason that they did safety was because they couldn't get into their first choice at university and then there was really good graduate jobs at the time. So let's not, I don't, I don't, want, to, um, I don't want to mislead listeners to think that that narrative doesn't evolve over time and it can be very hard for someone to distinguish between what they believe now and what they think that they believed when they first started joining the profession. So David, all through this discussion, there have been a number of, I think you started off by talking about them as the identity being confusing. These are, some people might see them as almost contradictions, others as goal conflicts or tensions that have arisen. Do you want to just maybe go through quickly the list of them and just spell out what are these sort of key struggling points that make the safety professional identity so confusing and difficult? Yeah, so let's do this. We're we're in the interest of time, Drew. I'll go I'll go quite quickly. But we have this. So these tensions we've spoken about, and then we will will sum up with practical takeaways. So the first tension is, you know, how how do we think about what's better between operational spirit experience and academic education? So valuing diversity, but undervaluing experiences that are different to mine. Relational influence versus formal authority. We value belongings and and involvement, but we also require authority to do some of our role. Interpersonal skills versus technical knowledge. We know that interpersonal skills are important, but other people value us for bringing technical knowledge and, and information. Enabling change versus protecting operations. How we value change and we potentially undervalue this protection of existing operations and existing capacity in the organization. This bureaucracy versus agency. 
we value our own freedom. We believe in uh, the freedom of others to make decisions and build capability in them to do that. But we believe that safety absolutely requires uh, bureaucracy to be successful. This moral safety professional versus unethical organisation, which is that we we are morally driven and ethically driven, and we have a belief that others aren't as ethically driven as us. So we need to be there to uphold the right decisions and to draw the line. We know we need to align with line managers versus having independent advice. So we we want leaders to be accountable for safety, but we don't believe that they understand safety, so they need us to still make sure they're making the right decisions. And then finally, Drew, others making operational decisions versus us drawing the line. So we respect other people's authority to make decisions, but we absolutely value control over being the ones to make the safety decisions in the organisation. So, David, in the interest of time, rather than sort of asking you a loaded question here, I might just mention directly that in in the paper, you point out a couple of ways that we can start to deal with these apparent contradictions. And one of them is the idea of multiple logics, that these don't have to be direct contradictions. They can just be different things that are important to us. And at different times, different sides of these equations become more important or less important or perhaps even for different people, that we form teams where different parts of the team will uphold one side of the contradiction, the other part of the team upholds the other side, and we exist in that tension, but in a constructive way. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. I think I, I initially was searching for the formula uh, and, and the answer to to this, and I think the answer is actually that uh, that the formula is very context dependent, which may not be surprising to our listeners to think that in different situations that the safety profession needs to be able to draw on different balances of, of each of these types of contradictions. It's definitely, they're definitely and propositions. You, you, you can't be at one end of the pendulum on any of these things, I think, uh, now. And there is quite a lot of theory in the institutional logic space, which talks about multiple logics and paradoxes. And a paradox is just two things that are apparently different, but both true. Uh, at the same time. And so I think there's there's quite a lot of new theory in, in the organisational literature around paradox mindset and hybrid professionals and multiple institutional logics that if I ever get around to finishing the paper, Drew, which is half done, will bring a lot of insight uh, for the safety profession into how we might think about this role and not be, not be anxious about this, how complicated this is, um, but understand it and then learn how to apply it in, uh, in context you know, in a context-dependent way. So, so that sounds like a good segue into practical takeaways. What's the value for a safety practitioner or a safety professional in learning this stuff about their own professional identity? What, what, what's the practical use of studying safety professionals and reporting it back to them? What, what do you expect people to do with this information? So, so firstly, it's I think it's it's useful to connect with our own uh, our own identity in I suppose all all aspects of our lives with who we are and how we think and therefore how it derives our view of others and how we behave and how we judge their behaviour. Drew, so I I would hope that just the reflective practice nature of just holding this mirror up and our listeners can agree or disagree, but at least giving them the opportunity to reflect on that. It's also going to provide insights for how we may think about shaping very practical things around our role, how we think about defining our role, explaining it to others, and then more broadly, how we think about professional education and career pathways, 
So I conclude in this paper, Drew, that I absolutely think we need to maintain multiple career pathways. Before this research, I had a tertiary qualification background. I thought the default position should be that, well, that should just at least be a minimum um, for, for everyone. And after doing this research, I formed the view that um, that's not the case. There definitely needs to be barriers to entry for the profession, I agree, but there may be multiple pathways to, to come into the profession and, and we should probably preserve that diversity in the profession. I did also conclude that I think on the basis of this that we need to rethink education. It's sort of a related topic, but rethink education as well. And then I also think if you've got all this information, it, it allows you to do really good role definition within your organisation. So many of these problems get exacerbated by the people we work with in terms of line managers, not having a maybe a different understanding of what they think our role is than how we identify with the role ourselves. So by having framework around this, by having language, it allows us to have conversations in our organisations about what to expect. So saying to managers, yeah, I'll support you up to a point, but this is how I'm going to decide when I can no longer support you. And this is how we're going to have the conversation when I get to that point. So I think the model and and this sort of research, Drew, provides the language and, and the framework to enable you know people to have discussions about how to improve the effectiveness of the profession. And David, just for myself, I would say that if you're a safety professional going to go into a job interview, this is the perfect paper to read through and think through beforehand. Because the questions David asked in his interview are pretty much the questions that I imagine a lot of people will ask in job interviews for safety practitioners. And someone who has reflected on these questions and has a position for where they stand and where they're flexible, um, I think is in a lot better position in defining and owning any role that they're going to go into. And for people who have heard me listen uh, once or twice, this was the research where um, I formed the view, which I've communicated through. I'm interested in your view as um, as a, someone who's developed university curriculum. But what I said is one of the most important things in a safety tertiary safety education program is probably to spend a semester where you send your students out into a frontline role like driving a truck or labouring or scaffolding or or a cleaner in a hospital and get the person to experience being exposed to the risk on the front line and look back at safety through the eyes of work and not look at work through the eyes of safety. I think that's a fantastic idea. And yes, definitely, certainly should be part of any undergraduate curriculum is spending that practical time, not doing a practical safety job, doing a practical non-safety job as part of your safety education. So Drew, uh, invitations for our listeners and let's, uh, what have you got? Uh, so we've laid out a whole bunch of questions and tensions in this episode. Uh, what I'd love is just for our listeners to reflect on those things and tell us what you think. You Do you think that uh, we've got it right? So what do you think about the balance of education and practical experience? Um, do you think it's important for safety practitioners to come from diverse backgrounds? What's your own background? And do you see value in other backgrounds? How do you see the relationship between interpersonal knowledge and technical skills? And maybe the interesting question here is how much do you feel that people demand that you demonstrate those technical skills versus how much do you value the interpersonal knowledge? Also, that question of relationships and formal authority, how do you make sense of that? How do you balance those things in your own role? And are these the right topics to talk about? Are there aspects of the safety professional identity that we've missed in this study? that you think we should have been talking about if we were talking about what makes a safety professional a safety professional. So a special shout out, Drew, as a, as a researcher to the participants. Um, 
I hope and know that some of them might be listening. So thank you for your trust and, and your support in, in the research. And um, to you, our listeners, uh, if you're liking what we're doing uh, at episode 30, where we're having a lot of fun every week, uh, it would be great if you could leave us a, a review or a, or a rating or, or just tell one other person about the show and, and, and help people to find it. But that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 